following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. We're going to continue on this morning looking in 1 Timothy chapter 1, so you might flip to that as we get ready. But, you know, I want to speak about the fact that um, as young Christians... Did you ever get advice on how to witness to new people? You know, when you first come to the Lord, you're excited. You want to tell other people about what it is you found in the Lord and and so forth. And uh, anybody ever give you advice in those early days how you should talk to someone? Well, I, I don't know about you, but I did. Um, and, and I was told things like, well, let them know how everyone is a sinner. But don't confront right away their profanity or their immorality or their drunkenness or their greed. But the only issue I was told is they need to believe in Christ. So that's where I ought to put my focus in witnessing to them. And since judgment and hell, those things are kind of sensitive issues, I probably should downplay those, but rather put my emphasis on the abundant life that Christ offers here and now. But, you know, I was never really quite at ease with that kind of methodology. For one thing, it didn't seem to line up with Scripture. And also, it struck me that it was kind of like being a good salesman. You know, you don't mention the things that might be wrong with the car, but you talk about all the good points, you know. I don't want to turn off a potential customer with my witness. So we won't talk about those things, but we'll talk about what Jesus does for them. But in catering to the customer, we kind of hold back a crucial part of the truth of the gospel. And some of the people who bought the product, they won't be so concerned about godly living. They were more caught up in how to get a happy life and how to feel better about myself. For them, Jesus was not so much essential as he was useful. He's going to help me out. Things are going to be better for me now. Well, you know, in the recent passing of uh, evangelist Billy Graham, I've been blessed by hearing a lot of snippets from his sermons and teachings to crowds of folks all over the world. Listen to those things and let that come back to memory a little bit because this man thundered against sin. He preached about judgment and hell. He wanted to strike fear into the hearts of people who were lost without a Savior to take care of it. And their message wasn't so much, if you'd like a a little bit happier life, try Jesus. No, it was, because of your sin, you're under God's wrath. And unless you repent and unless you trust in Jesus, you spend your eternity in hell. And God's got a better plan for you. That's what he preached. He invited people to flee to Christ with a lot more urgency than a lot of the uh, modern-day evangelists do today. Salesman, whose low-key approach says, well, just try Jesus for 30 days. See if you aren't satisfied. But I've come to realize that a major ingredient missing in a lot of these presentations of the gospel today is the right use of God's law to bring deep, and lasting and life-transforming convictions to people because of their sinful condition. People who aren't convinced of their sin and people who don't realize their utter inability to do anything about it, 
they're not desperate for what God offers in the gospel. They're like casual shoppers. A desperate shopper would be somebody who's has to have bottled oxygen to live. His supply is almost gone. And now there's a strike at the company that provides the tanks. He's down to his last bottle. And he rushes in the door. And he pleads, if you can't sell me more oxygen, I'm going to die. I just need a new tank. The casual shopper is the person who's got a closet full of nice clothes. And they go strolling through the mall. They haven't got a real need for anything, but if something grabs his fancy and the price is, price is right, he might be willing to buy. But not preaching God's holy law, we're giving self-righteous, contented people a false impression. We're saying to them, you can be a casual shopper towards the gospel, when, it, when in reality their condition is desperate. So I want us to come back to the Scripture. We'll go back as far as verse 6, I think, from where we looked last week. And in 6 and 7 of 1 Timothy 1, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away from vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they're making confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, Paul wrote to us in verses 6 and 7 talking about some false teachers who were troubling the church in Ephesus. They wanted to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand the proper use of the law. And then Paul goes on in this next section, verses 8 to 11, showing that the proper use of God's law is to bring conviction of sin so that people are driven to the gospel and will be saved. That's the purpose of the law. Now, I don't know what these guys were teaching, but it wasn't that, and it bothered Paul. When sinful men and women learn the righteous demands of God's law, they ought to be driven to despair because of their guilt before God. In a desperate state, the good news that Jesus Christ bore the sin curse of the law on our behalf, and he offers pardon and eternal life freely to anybody who's going to believe, it ought to impel them to flee to Christ so that they'll be saved. So we who've been entrusted with this great news... We need to know how to use God's law properly. We must never fall into the era of marketing Jesus as a way for a happier life. That's not what it's about. The proper use of God's law is not a means of salvation, but it's to bring 
Conviction of sin. Like I said, I don't know what these false teachers were saying, but if they were Jews with a self-righteous bent, then they probably were teaching that keeping the Old Testament law was a means of salvation. While at the same time, they were living in licentious manner. Legal or moral restraints, not there. That sounds contradictory, but really not. Jesus condemned the Pharisees because on one hand, they were promoting the works, a sort of righteousness, and they were urging the keeping of the law, not just the law of Moses, but the laws they added to it and made up too. But at the same time, they were inwardly lawlessness. Matthew In Matthew 23, 25, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're clean, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, then the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's what Jesus spoke of the rulers of that time. And it's commonly taught that legalism is on one extreme and licentiousness is on the other. That grace is the balance between the two. That's not what God's Word says. Legalism and licentiousness are actually two sides of the same coin. They both operate on the principle of the flesh. The legalist takes fleshly pride in the fact that he can observe certain rules and get him by. Of course, he picks the rules that he can keep, and those are the ones he'll follow. But since he's operating in the flesh, he hasn't gotten any power to deal with indwelling sin. And since sin isn't dwelt with inwardly, sooner or later, he falls into outwardly lawless behavior. And grace, on the other hand, operates with the power of indwelling Holy Spirit who enables a believer to judge sin at the thought level and be transformed in the inner person through the renewing of the mind and the power of God's Word. So we got to be clear on both what's the wrong way to use the law and what's the right way to use the law. Improper use of the law is to try to be saved by it. God's law can be compared to a mirror. The purpose of a mirror, when you hold it up, is not to wash your face, but it's so you can see the dirt and where it is. Keeping the law can't save you. No one is able to keep it perfectly. Only Christ can. And if the law can't save us, and if we can't keep it, then we're prone to say that the problem is with the law. (laughs) But Paul says in verse 8, The law is good if you'll use it lawfully. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is our sinful nature. It's only delusion of a sinful pride that makes us think that we can commend ourselves to God by keeping His law. (laughs) And when we look more carefully at the law, we discover that the proper use of the law is to bring conviction of sin. It's to look in the mirror and see the dirt to know what needs to be cleaned, 
Paul says the law is not made for a righteous man in verse 9. I think the law here refers to the law of Moses. Paul has referred to it just then twice in his list of sins. And you know, it's a parallel to the Ten Commandments. We'll get into that in just a minute. When Paul refers to a righteous man, he means one who's been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These folks are the ones who are truly righteous because they've got God's righteousness implanted in them. A merely godly man by human standards or a self-righteous man, he's still under God's condemnation and so he needs the law to reveal his sinfulness. So Paul's referring to those who have been declared righteous by the faith in Christ. And these folks are not under the law, but they're under grace. Praise God for that. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that they're lawless. They're under the law of the spirit of the life of Christ. And nor does Paul mean that the law doesn't have any benefits for us as believers. It reveals God's righteous character and how we must live in order to please Him. But since Romans 10.4 says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, we who are in Christ are not subject to the law's com- condemnation. Again, the primary function of the law is to bring conviction of sin to those who are still rebellious against God. God's law speaks to the sinner to reveal his sin and convict him of sin. And Paul gives a catalog of sins in those next few verses that we read this morning. And that roughly parallels the Ten Commandments. First, the offenses against God and then the crimes against fellow man. Take a look at that. He speaks about lawlessness and disobedience. And the commandment says, there should be no other gods before me. He speaks about ungodly and sinners. And the commandments say, don't have any idols. He speaks about the unholy and the profane. And God's word says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. He didn't refer anything there about keeping a Sabbath, but it's still important. (laughs) He said, those who strike their fathers and mothers. And the commandments say, honor your mother and your father. He said, those who are murderers. And the commandments say, don't murder. Immoral men and homosexuality, he speaks of. The commandment says, no adultery. Enslavers, those who take people that aren't theirs and make them become either theirs or someone else's. And he says, there shall not be stealing. He speaks of liars and perjurers. And the commandments say, Don't bear a false witness. And wrapped up in whatever else is contrary, he's got to be coveting and a whole lot of other things. You know, in the first glance, you even, you look at Paul's list or you look at the commandment list and you say to yourself, well, he's not talking about me. No, I haven't done these things. But a more careful look will convict even the most moral person. You know, how many of us have never been rebellious against God? You know, think back to the time when you were not saved. 
who hasn't the who who of us has not missed the mark of God's righteousness? Maybe we haven't been angry to the point where we're going to kill somebody. But maybe it was the restraint of the law that kept us from that. And you could go through the whole list. But you know, it only takes one count to convict us. The law is like a chain. One bad link in the chain means it's broken. James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles at one point, he's become guilty of all. You know, if you're in a boat and you're on a swift flowing river, 25 feet from a high waterfall, you're sliding down and the waterfall's getting closer and closer. And I throw you a chain to help hold your boat. The chain's securely tied to a tree on the bank. You're saved. But if there's just one bad link in the chain, you're lost. One violation of God's law brings condemnation. So the law is aimed at those who have not been justified by faith in Christ to bring them to a point of despair so they'll sense their condemnation before a holy God. The proper use of the law is lacking today. Many people think they're doing God a favor to put their trust in Christ. (laughs) Others come to Christ with the attitude, I'll try and see if he makes me happy, see if things are better. And what they need to realize is that they're headed towards the falls. You don't need to sell a man about to plunge to his death the idea of grabbing a lifeline. We need to know God's law so that we can use it to reveal God's holiness to a generation of men and women who are flagrantly violating the law. The primary function of the law is to bring conviction of sin to those who are still in rebellion against God. But God doesn't leave us in despair. The law isn't revealed apart from the gospel of Christ. The result of using the law properly is to drive people to the gospel for salvation. The fact that the law is not for the righteous but for the sinners and is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. That's the way Paul wrote it. That Christ bore the curse on the law of the law for us. The law proclaims we ought to obey God, but we haven't. Furthermore, we can't. It's not in our will or power to do it. So we're condemned. The gospel proclaims Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's Galatians 3.13. And there's three points to note concerning the gospel. One, the gospel brings spiritual healing. Praise God for that. Sound doctrine. The word sound modifying doctrine means healthy or whole. The good news is that no matter how spiritually diseased a person can be, no matter how far gone in sin, there's a healing in the gospel and a teaching in God's word that will bring strength and renewal. Paul speaks of the gospel revealing the glory of the blessed God. His love, his righteousness, mercy, grace, wisdom, power. God's described as the blessed God. And that refers to the fact that God is in and of himself blessed or truly happy. He's perfect in himself. 
the source of all true happiness and joy, that's found in God through the gospel of Christ. And thirdly, the gospel is entrusted to redeem sinners to proclaim uh, so that we can proclaim it to the lost. Notice how he ended that ver- that portion of Scripture, that which I have been entrusted. Paul goes on to show he was the chief of sinners, but yet God saved him and entrusted him with the awesome responsibility of proclaiming the gospel to others. The solemn truth is that God doesn't save us so that we might live happy lives for ourselves and then go to heaven. He's left us on this earth to proclaim his message of reconciliation to other people. Too many times we get wrapped up in what we feel are the benefits of being alive in Christ. And we don't accept the responsibility of taking that gospel to the world around us. If everybody had heard and everybody had chosen, Christ would have brought us home. We We wouldn't need to be here. We're here because there's a job to do. One of the greatest evangelisms of the 19th century was a preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Both his dad and his granddad were preachers. So he grew up in a home that had pretty strict Christian standards. He grew up in an age without pervasive corruption, sensuality, or violence. Not the stuff that bombards us from movies, television, pornography, social media. But I want you to listen to his account now. This is from an autobiography he wrote. The deep conviction of sin that he went through before he came to Christ. And he came to Christ when he was 15 years old. Here's what he wrote. When but young in years I felt with much sorrow the evil of sin. My bones waxed old with my roaring all the day long. Day and night God's hand was heavy upon me. I feared lest the very skies should fall upon me and crush my guilty soul. God's law had laid hold upon me and was showing me my sins. If I slept at night, I dreamt of the bottomless pit, and when I awoke, I seemed to feel the misery I had dreamed. Up to God's house I went. My song was but a sigh. To my chamber I retired. And there, with tears and groans, I offered up my prayer, without a hope and without a refuge, for God's law was flogging me with a ten-thonged whip and then rubbing me with brine afterwards, so that I'd shake and quiver with pain and anguish, and my soul chose strangely strangling rather than life, for I was exceedingly sorrowful. For five years, as a child, there was nothing before my eyes but my guilt, And though I didn't hesitate to say that those who observed my life would not have seen any extraordinary sin, yet as I looked at myself, there wasn't a day in which I did not commit such gross, outrageous sins against God, and that often and often have I wished I had never been born. Before I thought upon my soul's salvation, I dreamed that my sins were very few. All my sins were dead, as I imagined and buried in the graveyard of forgotfulness. But that trumpet of conviction, which aroused my soul to think of eternal things, sounded a resurrection note to all my sins, and oh, how they rose up in multitudes, more countless than the sands of the sea. Now I saw that my very thoughts were enough to to damn me, 
that my words would sink me lower than the lowest hell, so I couldn't bear them. I thought I'd rather have been a frog or a toad than have been a man. I reckoned that the most defiled creature, the most loathsome and contemptible, that was a better thing than myself, for I had grossly and grievously sinned against Almighty God. A spiritual experience which is thoroughly flavored with a deep and bitter sense of sin is of great value to him who has had it. It's terrible in the drinking, but it's most wholesome in the bowels and in the whole of the afterlife. Possibly much of the flimsy piety of the present day arises from the ease with which men attain to peace and joy in these evangelistic days. Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of our Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with a rope around his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he's pardoned, to hate the evil which had has been forgiven him, and to live in the honor of the Redeemer by the blood he has been cleansed. Too many Christians today think that a boy who thought like that must be severely dysfunctional. (laughs) That his parents had seriously failed to build in him self-esteem. But that's how God uses his law to convict and to drive to the cross one of the greatest evangelists in his generation. Use God's law to bring conviction to sinners so that they will flee to Christ and be saved. That's the proper use of the law. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we don't want to take lightly the blessings we have found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we recognize our own sinfulness. We recognize our need for a Savior. We cannot push away the dysfunction in our lives that brings us away from you. We can't do anything to earn your love for the sins that so easily plague us. Father, we ask now that you would hear our hearts. We come before you to seek forgiveness, to say thank you for giving your life for us, for we could never do it. We know of our worthlessness. We recognize, Lord, how much we need you. And Father, if there are any here today who've never come to that point of recognizing our disobedience against you, we don't do it on purpose, but it's there, that they would know the ease of hearing the gospel that you have given Jesus to be the payment for our sinfulness. That if we would trust and believe that what he did, he did for us. And then we would trust in him, you would give us new life. And so, Father, move on the hearts of those who are assembled here today. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Amen. If you'd like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, Checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.